Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Tim Schwartz, who is the author of a new book called A Public Service, Whistleblowing, Disclosure, and Anonymity. Tim Schwartz's career focuses on data privacy and digital information. As an artist, activist, and technologist, he specializes in teaching techniques for challenging power while protecting one's identity. Schwartz co-organizes the digital training organization Los Angeles Crypto Party, a member of the Electronic Frontier Alliance. He currently works as a digital strategist at Alley, a digital agency that builds websites and digital systems for the media, nonprofits, and others. After developing technology to reunite missing people affected by the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, he began organizing the Missing Persons Community of Interest, which develops technology for reunifying families after disasters. Tim Schwartz lives in Los Angeles. Tim, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, having this conversation. Uh, thanks for coming on. Hopefully, we have, can find time to talk about uh, many aspects of your uh, career. But I want to <laughs> start with this book. Um, well, first of all, before anyone rushes out to buy this book, they should figure out how to do so without producing any record of having done so. Is that right? Yeah, I think if, uh, if you're thinking about disclosing information, it's best to. Uh, absorb the techniques of how to do so anonymously if you can, so you don't tip your hand before you try to do it. Why? You know, uh, so, so, <laughs> and, so. and reading, I was just going to say, and reading is one of those acts that uh, can still be anonymous. You can sit at home and read a book, and it is anonymous, and no one knows what information is going in your head. And compare that to reading something online where any number of companies or governments might be tracking what website you click on. So I think reading a book is a pretty good way to start. Uh, so it may be a little trickier uh, to buy a book without leaving any record during a coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I take your advice to be get cash, go in person, avoid cameras, buy the book. Uh, how do you do that from home? <laughs> So it's a little bit trickier uh, from home. So I would suggest in, in this era, um, you know, if you can make a throwaway email account and buy the ebook or perhaps find it on the dark web using Tor or something like that, I think that's a good first step. Um, there's also some sections of my book that have been published online already. Uh, on Boing Boing, there's a big excerpt on data gathering. So that's another good place to start. And, you know, if you can't quite figure it out, ask your local technologist um, how you might be able to buy an ebook anonymously. Um, and, and why? <laughs> why is I mean, this? Your book is sort of a guide to being a whistleblower. You're thinking about being a whistleblower, or you've decided you're going to be a whistleblower, how to do it. Uh, why is anonymity such a huge part uh, of this? Yeah, so I think it's it's tricky what you're walking into, right? If you blow the whistle, if you raise red flags about, I don't know, systemic uh, sexual harassment in your organization, about fraud, uh, if your identity is known, it's very, very likely that you will be retaliated against. 
Um, and so if you're anonymous, you can go through the process doing research, thinking about the best way to do it, and potentially expose all this without having lots of repercussions yourself. Um, there are, you know, many, many, many cases of people that have lost their jobs, lost, uh, you know, their ability to make money, had problems at work, had problems in their family, and, um, you know, have have gone to jail because at that point um, what they were doing or the way they did it wasn't wasn't legal. And so by being anonymous, you get the best shot at protecting yourself from the beginning and figuring out how to do it the best way possible. And if, and um, if you're... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of people think that, you know, the best way to do it is just to print something out, print out a document and throw it in the mail and email it to a journalist or a lawyer and make it someone else's problem. And that's, that's a good first instinct. But a lot of the time, there are traces of your own identity left in those documents, or maybe you were, you were really unique in having access to that document. And it points the finger right back at you. So if you can be anonymous and do research, I think is key at the beginning, you can kind of plan the best course of action and really assess different ways of uh, disclosing information whether it's to a journalist, a lawyer, or working with a public advocacy organization that can um, help you uh, go about this in the safest way possible. And if you're working at a, at a government agency or a, a corporation uh, or some other organization that has uh, internal channels set up that you're supposed to go through if you have a complaint, uh, you need to assess whether those are likely to work before trying them, right? Uh, because you, you identify yourself as a likely whistleblower when they don't work and you go public. Exactly. I, I think um, going internal to kind of assess if the information you have is correct and what your hunches are are correct is, is a good thing to do, you know, without tipping your hand. But as soon as you go internal, you, you, let me put it uh, a really blunt example. In the Harvey Weinstein case, uh, victims of sexual harassment were emailing HR department uh, their complaints. And that HR department was forwarding those responses or those uh, emails directly to Harvey Weinstein. So when the system is policing itself, there's there's a conflict of interest there. If the person paying your uh, salary is the same person that you're getting information about, uh, there's conflict of interest there. So I think in general, going outside of an internal channel uh, to expose uh, corruption is is the best way to do it. Yeah, and and when someone like uh, Chelsea Manning goes outside of the proper channels, uh, she's condemned for it. But when someone like Jeffrey Sterling goes within the proper channels, nothing happens. And when the information is leaked by someone, he gets blamed. Exactly. So it's really tricky. And, you know, I think some of the best cases uh, of people doing this successfully we probably don't know their names. We don't even realize that there's someone out there. You know, you look at the John Doe from the Panama Papers, uh, which is one of the, you know, in terms of number of files and amount of data revealed, um, one of the biggest in history. They're still anonymous. They're still out there. They did not suffer the consequences 
for the actions they took to uh, expose and you know unethical and in some countries illegal acts uh, of people uh, you know hiding money uh, in various countries. So by being anonymous, they were able to protect themselves from the beginning uh, from that retaliation. And what if your intention uh, along the lines of uh, another well-known whistleblower, Edward Snowden, is actually to go public? Uh, is there still a period of time before going public when it's absolutely necessary to, to maintain uh, your anonymity? Totally. So Edward Snowden is a great example because for a long time he was anonymous. He was anonymous in communicating with lawyer portraits. And um, and other journalists, you know, uh, and by being anonymous, he could figure out the best way to gather data, buy himself time. And then in the end, you know, part of what made his story credible was his identity as, you know, working in the NSA. And, and that made hit the case um, clearer to the public. And so using your identity at the end to publicly say, uh, this is what's going on, can be a good tactic. Uh, but, you know, there could have been, and, and, and frankly, in Edward Snowden's case, it protected him because as soon as he became public about it, um, right, the public knew, knew who he was, and if something had happened to him, the public would have been outraged. So it, it was a protection mechanism for him as well in that case. I, I don't think most whistleblowers or disclosers are going to be exactly in that situation. But there definitely are times where going public with your identity can be um, helpful. But I think controlling that is really important because if you're, if you're not anonymous, then you're basically um, leaving it up to, I'll say, your adversary to determine when your, your identity is revealed. Whereas if you're anonymous and you're in control of your identity, you can choose it as a card to play to become public with your identity. Right. And and unless you control that narrative, you're leaving it up to uh, your opponents to uh, announce to the world based on nothing what your intentions were and, and what your motivations were and your, your evil alliances. Uh, whereas if you put out your own statement, uh, it, can, it, it can depict you as, as doing what you actually intended to be doing, right? Exactly. And in, in, in the first uh, video interview where Green, Glenn Greenwald interviews Edward Snowden, he introduces him as a whistleblower, right? And they uh, paint this portrait of Edward Snowden as a whistleblower. Whereas if, you know, the NSA had controlled that narrative of re re release, they would have called him a traitor or a rat or, you know, any number of things to to sway the public opinion of him from the very beginning. Right. We're, we're speaking with Tim Schwartz. The book is called A Public Service, Whistleblowing, Disclosure, and Anonymity. Uh, a lot of the book, Tim, is is tech support. It's really what what program, what browser, what uh, what computer, what tablet, where to get it, how to use it. Is there is there is there tech support out there for potential whistleblowers who, who need something beyond the book? There definitely is. Um, I, I would say um, looking to organizations that already work with technology, freedom, and privacy is a good place to start. The Electronic Frontier Foundation and their partner organizations from the Electronic Frontier Alliance is a 
great place to look. Uh, I co-organize LA Crypto Party, and there are crypto parties all over the world that you can go and kind of have conversations about anonymity, privacy, and security, and the technology to do so. Um, but but the key is, I think, with a lot of this, is it's not that tricky. If you want to get online and start doing research anonymously, um, you know, using getting a different computer or a different tablet or a different phone that you never put your own identity into is a really easy way to start. Um, I think over the years, we've started conflating privacy and security with actually protecting your identity. And I, I would argue at this point that privacy is basically dead. Companies and governments are in all of our devices. And the only way to really protect yourself is to use the lens of anonymity. So if I have all of my computers and devices at home that I regularly use, if I want to do research about how to disclose safely, or say I just want to research on a topic that I don't want someone to know I'm researching on, say a particular medical condition or uh, a, a political point of view I have, if I get a different device, say that I buy in cash, um, and use that to do research, not at my home, not on my own Wi-Fi, or I use a program like Tor, which some people out there might have heard of, which is basically for uh, routing your traffic through multiple hops around the world and being anonymous, you can do research anonymously and, and protect your identity that way. And so I, I think some basic searching right at the beginning can get you pretty far and get you well set up and a mindset instead of just thinking that some software is going to protect you, but a mindset of compartmentalization where you use different devices when you're trying to do research anonymously is a really good way to do it. What about legal support? Do you recommend that people uh, contact a lawyer before becoming a whistleblower? I think it is a great, uh, great thing to do. And frankly, most people that come up to me saying, you know, I've seen something at work, this thing has happened, this is the situation right now, I would say 99% of the time I say, you need to talk to a lawyer because they've probably gone too far into the situation and maybe they're already being retaliated against, or it's already clear that it's going to become some sort of a legal action. Um, I would say when you're looking at lawyers, you need to think about who they've represented before, uh, what your um, game plan is, what do you want the outcome to be? Do you want a settlement? Do you want the public to know about this? There are some lawyers out there that are that specialize in basically trading the information you have for a settlement agreement, and maybe that information would never get out there. Um, so really consider who that lawyer is, what that law firm is, or, you know, there are whistleblowing specific public advocacy organizations that have legal departments in them. For example, the Government Accountability Project that's worked with loads and loads of whistleblowers. And by going to them, at the beginning, before you get into the weeds, you can really get a good sense uh, of what's to come and also great advice on how to go about it. Um, I, I frankly, if I was in the situation, would probably go to Gap first just to get a sense of uh, the best way to do it. Now, I would love to go them anonymously rather than using my face at the beginning. I think communicating anonymously for example, creating a fake email address 
and sending some emails without giving away your identity is a really safe way to do it, just to test the waters instead of, you know, walking in the door or, as some have done, if they want to partner with a, uh, with a journalist, you know, instead of walking directly into uh, a, a newspaper's office, creating a fake email address or getting uh, some secure accounts and messaging with a journalist is, is a lot safer than just walking in the door. How do, how do you go about uh, and the the book is packed with with great advice on all of these topics and examples uh but how how do you go about uh identifying a journalist or or a, a media outlet uh that that you can trust that that's worth uh contacting and that you can expect to itself understand uh what's needed to to protect your identity So I think the easiest way to do this is to read, read and research different organizations, look for journalists that have covered these topics before, look for journalists that, uh, you know, have worked with sources and whistleblowers before and look at how uh, they have uh, written about that. Um, I think you need to think about your own ethics and point of view, and you need to be able to trust that the person on the other side either A, shares that point of view, or um, B, it is adjacent to that point of view and will be fair in how they tell the story. I think that that's kind of a key point. Because not all journalists could you expect to uh, lobby for your side of the story, but if your story is very clear, to be able to tell it clearly and uh you know, straightforward, I, I think is, is a great thing to look for. The other thing, you know, a way to trust a partner, I'm going to call them partners, whether it's a lawyer, a journalist, or someone at a public advocacy organization, is look at the signals they give in secure ways to contact them. If they're not up on their technology in presenting a clear pathway to contact them securely, I don't know if I would trust them because if they haven't taken the time to think about uh, how to communicate safely with a source, you might not be willing to trust them on other aspects of how they're going to protect your identity information and tell your story. Um, some things to look out for are, um, you know, are there email addresses or ways of contacting them listed on their organization's website? Do they use um, software like Keybase to verify their own website, their own email address? Does the organization use something like SecureDrop or Signal to take in tips anonymously and securely? Um, there's a whole checklist. Something I would generally stay away from is any kind of web form where it's just, here's the box, hit enter. Those are kind of notoriously low security, and I would be scared to do that. Um, but, but you know, key, key points, signal, wire, these type of anonymous messaging apps, if journalists are, or partners are listing their identities on those, those are great, way to, great, great ways to reach out. What about uh, what about being the media yourself? Is there an anonymous way to put a report uh, or uh, or to to your your own written uh, description of crimes and outrages 
online for yeah. the media and everyone else to find? So two things about that. So yes, it's possible. I would call it self-publishing. Um, you know, opening up an anonymous Twitter using a VPN and Tor and an anonymous email address, totally possible. Um, the problem I think with not working with a partner and trying to report yourself is you inherently become um, the person or the, the entity that has to scour through the information and make sure that your identity isn't in it. Let me give you a great example. Um, this isn't self-publishing, but uh, in the case of Reality Winner, where they sent a document uh, to a news media outlet, and that document was published online, or even a copy of it was, um, just the act that that document existed outside of the agency uh, tipped off the agency that someone internally had sent it off or revealed it. And the agency simply had to look at how many people in the organization had looked at that document and printed it, and there were only six individuals, I'm sorry, I think six individuals that had looked at it uh, in, you know, the course of a month, and only one had printed it. And maybe, I think it was Reality Winner. And so right. that uh, uniqueness factor, if, if, if you're trying to be liable to your, uh, do it all yourself, you have to be really ultra sure that you've sanitized and removed any identity tracks that could link back to you. Whereas if you work with a partner, they have the potential, you know, someone that's been through the process before to think through all the caveats. Right. And, and yeah. part of being a whistleblower is you're doing it. You're, it's not like a career that you practice time and time again. You're doing it kind of for the first time. And so there are a lot of pitfalls that yeah. you want to make sure you don't fall into. Even if you are working with a partner, which was the case in this example, right? Exactly. Um, what about uh, what about moral support? If you're going to reveal to the world some horrible crime or outrage by some powerful entity, can you tell your family and friends about it? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it, it depends definitely on the situation. But I think um, as long as you are not implicating your family or putting them in danger, having, you know, a support network that's small at home can be really important. Whether or not you say what, what you're actually revealing, you can say, I'm going through a really tough situation. I'm about to, I have this material I need to get out. You don't have to tell your family what it is. But I think having that support is really important for a lot of people. And and what about the way that that this whole issue has changed in recent times, in in the Obama years and the Trump years? Uh, I mean, we're we're actually seeing more whistleblowers, but more punishment of whistleblowers. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, there was a study. Um, well, two things. Um, there was a study a couple of years ago that had been tracking when employees report con corruption when they see it. And that trend line has loosely been going up over the last 20 years. So, you know, from in 2000, I think around 50 or 55 percent of employees would report it when they saw it. We're now up to about 70 percent of employees report something when they see it. The problem is 
the retaliation against employees has skyrocketed. And between 2013 to 2017, it's basically doubled from like 20% of the time to 40% of the time. So if you reveal something and someone knows about it internally, you know, almost 50% of the time you're going to be retaliated against. And in the government, uh, in the U.S. government in particular, if you work in government, it's kind of gotten worse. Uh, I think Trump has publicly decried whistleblowing and leaking a lot, but some of the implementation um, from the Obama administration of checks and balances were really strict. You know, they were a pretty strict administration and tight on wanting to control the narrative of what went out the door. And, you know, there was an insider threat um, program that was put in place during Obama. Uh, and one of the one of the posters that was thankfully taken down uh, was every leak makes us weak. So can you imagine the the stifling on the environment for whistleblowers seeing a poster like that in the hallway of a government uh, yeah. government uh, building? Indeed. We, we've got just a, a few minutes left, but I have to, to ask about this notion that 70% of employees uh, will reveal something if they see it. Because whenever we hear about a whistleblower like Chelsea Manning, for example, there are reports on how many tens of thousands of people had access to the same information. And it was this one unique individual who chose to, to make it public. How, how is it possible that three quarters of people are, are being brave, unique, courageous whistleblowers. Yeah. Well, I think when we look at the Chelsea Manning situation or Edward Snowden, those are really high-level, large, uh, you know, cases of whistleblowing. It might be your manager is pocketing $1,000. You know, whistleblowing comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and I think uh, this study could be completely wrong. I might, you know, I, I wouldn't wouldn't knock it or wouldn't you know, question someone knocking it. But I think the fact is there's all sorts of corruption, whether it's uh, illegal or unethical, that people raise their voices about. And I think, uh, I think that's out there. I think that's out there. But unfortunately, there are systems that are uh, stifling those messages and retaliating against them. Do you think that, uh, just a minute left here, do you think that these big famous cases and, and what might happen to Julian Assange, for example, have an impact on people deciding to be whistleblowers? Totally. Totally. And I think uh, we need more people up high supporting whistleblowers and their voices and making it known that this is good, that exposing corruption and unethical acts uh, is a good thing for our society uh, and and for organizations, companies, and governments. We need more of it. And it's a, it's a service we should thank people for. The, the book is called A Public Service, Whistleblowing, Disclosure, and Anonymity by Tim Schwartz, who's been our guest. Uh, make sure you get a copy of this book without creating a public record of having done so. I, I highly recommend the book. Tim Schwartz, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much. Have a good one. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org.
Help End War at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.